Well, I enjoy uh, this casual atmosphere. For many, many years, we had Bible study in our home, and I like sitting at the table, and we all sit around, and I want you to feel comfortable to get up and go in the kitchen and clean up the kitchen if you like, um, or do what you like, so it doesn't bother me, all right? If the kids cry or yell, it doesn't bother me. So we just relax. This is how the early church met in homes like this. And you can imagine squeezing all the people they could squeeze into homes that are probably a lot smaller than this. Now, I was asked specifically to address the issue of people being concerned for more shepherds in our church, and particularly young people uh, needing uh, future shepherds. And I thought, uh, in light of that, uh, a great, great passage for that very issue is First Peter chapter 5. So if you turn to First Peter 5, well, let me just say why this actually is a very important issue. And it's something that you as parents have to address. As you know very well, America is becoming more and more secularized and hostile to our Christian faith. So let me give you an example. Uh, when I became a Christian at 11 years of age from a non-Christian home, after I became a Christian, so let's say uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, my, my father and mother's beliefs, their morals were here, and mine were here. We, we really weren't that far apart. My dad's generation, World War II generation, basically would agree with really 90% of what we believe today. And uh, although they weren't born again, we, we shared really many values. But today, uh, a parent and a child today, well, we're like that. We're like that. Uh, many things we believe are just totally offensive to our modern society. Just try to tell someone you believe the man is the head of the home and the wife submit to him. Uh, I, I would run quick if I were you. And then if you were to say you didn't believe in same-sex marriage, well, undoubtedly you're a social dinosaur and uh, a Neanderthal from the Dark Ages. Seriously, and much of this has happened just in uh, 20 years. It's, uh, I think most of us who are over a certain age we are just sort of shocked by the whole thing and how quickly it, is, it has happened. So, here is the problem. The problem is that as our society turns more and more secular and really more immoral and with a complete loss of Christian memory... Uh, it's going to be harder and harder to find future shepherds to lead the Lord's people. Uh, one reason is, you'll find when people come into your church today, they've already had shattered lives. Many of them have been divorced or divorced twice. They've struggled with drugs or maybe alcohol, uh, serious sin problems. And uh, so what's happening is as it's sort of more like Corinth. You know what they say, it wasn't a problem that the church was in Corinth, the problem was too much of Corinth was in the church. So what's happening today, too much of secular society is coming into the church. Another area is the area of commitment. So, let's go back to my father's generation, the World War II generation. I'm with the baby boomer generation. We have the millennial generation, the me generation. Uh, so, the generation that built many of our churches, actually, uh, were people of very high commitment. They were people who belonged to things. So, my father, not a Christian, belonged to the Masons and six other clubs. They read a newspaper every day. Uh, very committed to his social groups, his clubs. 
Well, that was true in the churches uh, uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago. People were highly committed to their local church. Well, there'd be problems. There's always problems. They didn't run out the door. Today, we have a whole generation that has very low level of personal commitment to anything outside themselves. They're not joiners. In fact, I remember my dad moaning this fact about uh, maybe 20 years ago saying to me, we cannot get anyone to join, cannot get young men to join the Masons, which he was very much a part of. It's not a Christian organization, but the point is men would join that and they would have this big social network But today, he would say, no one wants to join. But that's not what we're like. Well, this kind of disposition comes into the church. And it's very harmful to us. So, for example, I can tell you, my wife can tell you, she's a very beautiful woman just sitting in the back of me here. And uh, uh, we could tell you about Sunday school teachers who serve Sunday school teachers 25, 30 years. Now, to get a Sunday school teacher, we do it, you know, six months. You have a co-teacher. Please, won't you, won't you serve in the Sunday school? That's what we have to do today. Because people don't want that kind of commitment. And you have to be there every Sunday. Uh, no, I, you know, you must uh, have a different kind of church. Uh, we're, we're busy. And that's another problem that's hurting us to get shepherds. It's called hyper-busyness. Have you ever heard of it? Yes. Uh, is it a problem? It doesn't matter. Calvin, it doesn't matter where I go. I hear this everywhere. How are you doing your Bible reading? Oh, I'm so busy. You know, um, what's your ministry? Well, I, uh, I don't really have much of a ministry. I'm so busy. See, the, all of this in our society uh, destroys the Christian life. So, we're supposed to be masters of the Bible. Now, that's a big book, isn't it? It's little thin pages. We are to know this book. All of us here, not just the elders, we are all to know God's book. He's the author of this book. It's the Monarch Book, best-selling book in the world, over uh, 7 billion copies. It would make the New York Times best-selling list, but it got boring, so they don't put it on anymore. But it's the best-selling book every month. And it's a book in uh, uh, thousands of languages. Well, if you are to know this book, you have to have time. You have to have time. And you have to have time for it. Sociologists say we're in the day of distractions. Never in human history have there been so many distractions. Well, you've got your computer, though. You have your cell phone, your smartphone. If not, hopefully not that smart. And then you've got TV, and you've got so many good TV shows, you know, and, and movies, and sports, and... It's almost endless, all these distractions. Well, let's go back again to that generation of my dad. I know best. And they didn't have all, they didn't grow up on TV. They didn't even have TV in their younger days. And so I think this is true. I think that generation knew their Bibles much better. And I hear over and over again when I ask people about their Bible reading, they just don't have the time. So if you're going to develop the Christian life, uh, it takes time. You don't have time. I call it the new idolatry. We don't have time for God. Sorry. We don't have time for prayer. Or how about Bible meditation? This, most people wouldn't even know what you're talking about. So, I'm saying that the, the, the world where we're living, in the Western world we're living in today, is not conducive to spiritual growth. It's definitely not conducive to raising up elders 
and deacons and Sunday school teachers and youth workers who will serve for years and will give large portions of their time because that's what it takes to see a church uh, be protected and grow and prosper. It, it is basically a commitment of your life. So, dads and moms, you're going to have to fight this battle with your young people. And you're going to have to say no to them. You're going to have to put your foot down on some of these things. And they don't like it. But I don't see how we're going to have uh, future leaders and future uh, people to lead our church and guard our churches and minister in the churches if we don't set this vision out for them that they've got to fight back. They have to fight back at what I call hyper-busyness. We're, we're literally traveling at warp light speed. My wife and I raised four, four uh, daughters. We have 11 grandchildren. But we ate 90% of the time dinner every night and uh, we were very, very busy. We were not just sitting around watching TV. We were very, very busy, but we were able to eat dinner together every night and to have devotions together and talk together and fellowship together and then go out and do our activities after. I hardly know a young person that sits at a table with their parents that night for dinner. I hardly even know one. In fact, when our daughters would bring their friends over, they thought it was like a TV show. Most, Not a one of them had a father. And to sit at the table with a father and a mother and sit and relax and talk and have conversation, it was like they were watching like uh, something that from the past, you know. This was done in the 40s, you know. So we have these societal changes, and they're, they're really catastrophic. Well, it all affects the church. It all affects the church. So I do think in our churches, we need to consistently address these issues. Consistently. At least once a year, have a challenge to... How can you live the Christian life in a world of distractions? In a world that has encroached upon every part of our life. You can hardly have a free moment. I see my son-in-laws and they, if they get a week off, a full week off, they're very fortunate, but they always gotta be connected, be connected. And two weeks off straight, no, they can't do that. Do a week here, maybe a week in here and that, because, uh, uh, the demands of business and demands of the company are, are such that uh, if you're going to make any money or be successful, you're going to pay a heavy price. So I say all this to encourage you, no, discourage you, but it's reality. Whether it encourages you or discourages, I don't know. I'm going to tell you this is the world we're living in, and it's becoming harder and harder uh, to work at a church and to find people who will work, to find people who will say, I am committed to the local body, which is the Lord's house, the Lord's people. Okay? So, I was thinking of a passage uh, to deal with this. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. I thought it would be the, the best passage. Uh, Peter was dealing with a little different problem, but it's still a problem. And that was the pressure of persecution. And persecution puts a lot of stress on a church. We, we really don't have persecution here, so it's hard to understand. But it does produce problems in a church, just like our modern culture, our secular uh, American society is putting pressures on us, influencing us far greater than we realize, far greater than we realize. So let's look at this passage because we can transfer some of these ideas to our modern day. So who would like to read? Oh, right, why don't you read? You have a... Uh, you have a good, strong voice. How far? Uh, verses 1, let's read to 5. Verse 5. All right. 
First Peter five. Nice and slow and distinct. First Peter five one through five. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, Oh, this is wonderful. You will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. <coughs> Likewise, you younger people, listen, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, you have an outline in front of you. Uh, we look at Peter, an elder, to fellow elders. Now, very often in books and in lectures, it's Paul, 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 Paul. It almost sounds like Peter wasn't even around. Uh, I want to remind you that Peter is every bit as inspired as the Apostle Paul. And Peter writes on the elders just like Paul writes on the elders. In fact, Peter writes some things that Paul doesn't write, and he tells us some very, very important things. You know, Peter was a great man. Sometimes we overemphasize the, the fact that he always put his foot in his mouth. Uh, that's before he had the Holy Spirit. And he did have problems, like all of us have problems. But I think we need to realize this was a great man, and he was a great preacher. How many of you have preached a sermon and 3,000 are saved? And went, David, did that ever happen to you? It never happened to me. So he was a good preacher and teacher. We see his book here. It's very powerful, First and Second Peter. And it's very uh, likely that Mark wrote a, the, the Gospel of Mark as a result of Peter's uh, own messages. And uh, so we need to remember, Peter, and this is so important when you think of authority, Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Think of that. He's an eyewitness of our Lord. As he says in first, uh, as he tells us he, he uh, in Second Peter chapter 1, he was there on the mountain with the Lord and he heard these things. So uh, it's very important to listen to the one that actually heard Jesus Christ and walked with Jesus Christ. Now in the early church, uh, he was not an armchair theorist. He wasn't a, an academic. He was a man on the front line of battle. And he's still probably a man in his mid-60s on the front line of battle, most likely in Rome, writing uh, uh, this letter. Now, this letter, as you know, deals with the, the influence and pressure of persecution. The believers were under persecution. And you know that persecution, the pressure comes into the church and it does cause arguing and fighting and causes fear and and uh, maybe people don't want to go to church. I think of places in the world, maybe you saw this on the news just the other day, there are places in the world like Pakistan, uh, parts of India today, we were just talking about this, uh, and uh, Northern Africa, when you go to church, there's, there's a chance someone's going to throw a grenade into the church. Uh, someone might, uh, uh, like we were just talking about in India, uh, during a big conference they were having, the, the Hindus came in and broke up the whole conference. 
One of our missionaries, um, this is an incredible story. They're in their late 50s. They retired, an Indian couple in our church. And when they retired from work, they went to India as missionaries because they can get in. They're Indian. And they, they have a house. They buy a house in India. They pick a place where there's no church and they want to start a church. Imagine, in their late 50s, early 60s, they're starting a whole new missionary career. So they get there. In the first week, 40 neighbors showed up at the house and told them, get out of here or we will kill you. You are not to teach Jesus. Uh, Brother Abraham uh, uh, Thomas, uh, Abraham George said to him, well, we came here to do a, a God's will and we're not leaving. Just have to kill us. Well, they didn't kill him, although they threatened him. Today, there's over 40 people in their home with a church. They've done many baptisms. At Christmas time, they had 100 people there at Christmas to hear of Christ. What courage that took. What courage that took. I want to remind you, in many places of the world, it is a, it is a danger being a Christian. 2015, 5,000 uh, people were martyred for Christ. Countless were marginalized as a result of their testimony. Well, something similar to that uh, was happening to the people Peter writes to. They were suffering for their faith. Now, when persecution arises, who usually takes the brunt of it? Anyone want to say? We don't have a lot of time, so yell it out. Who takes the brunt of it when persecution arises? The leaders. What? The leaders. They're the first targets, first line. And so now Peter's been warning these believers. He's telling them, this is nothing strange. You were warned repeatedly that if you are a believer, you will suffer persecution. It's actually a part of the Christian life. Jesus Christ Himself warned. He said, they persecuted me, persecuted me. They're going to do the same to you. So, we come now to the end of the book and Peter turns to the leaders. And if you can get this this evening, I want you to see Peter's passion. He's, he's saying something like this. Persecution, persecution. Don't be, uh, don't be surprised by it. This is inevitable. This is the way of the Christian. Now, you are shepherds. Use a strong imperative. Shepherd the flock of God. You have to keep the flock together. When they're fearful, when they think hand grenades are going to be thrown into the church, when they think they might lose their job, the children won't be able to go to college, when they think uh, of all the, of the uh, uh, guff they've got to take from people's lips, uh, persecuting them, he says, men, you've got to shepherd the church of God because you're key to keeping the church together. And uh, leaders will make the difference. They will make the difference. And the same thing's true in your church now. Uh, we as leaders need to make the difference in addressing secularism. It's almost a tsunami that's just run over the evangelical church. i just seen in seminaries and churches just giving in, giving in, giving in. Secular tsunami running over. And how important it is for the shepherds to warn the sheep. This is coming. This is here. We have to stand together against this. Very often how the leaders act, the people act. If the leaders are courageous, the people will be courageous. If they trust God, people will trust God. If they're loving, the people will be loving. If they run and hide, the flock will be scattered. Especially when we have these growing tensions. And so, this is sort of the background to this. And there's a motion to this, to this uh, section here. Let's look now at Peter, an elder, and a, a fellow elder.
So the first thing he says, he's very clever at what he does here. I exhort the elders among you. So he's got something to say. What he has to say is, do the job. Do the job. The people need you. Okay? But here's how he does it. He says, I'm a fellow elder. So what he's going to do is draw his readers to himself. That's a good thing to do, David. You're speaking to people. Try to identify with them. Uh, Let them know, I've been through the same thing. So, he's a good communicator, and this introduction is a little lengthy, but he's preparing them for what he wants to say. The first thing he says is this, I am a fellow elder. Uh, I'm not an armchair uh, professional, I'm not an academic sitting in a seminary, I'm not sitting in a library, I'm on the front line of battle, just like you are. And I've been on the front line of battle in Jerusalem when the whole thing all started and the Lord ascended to heaven. I was on the front line as an elder. The twelve apostles were really the elders of the first church. They were the first leadership body. So he he creates a sense of colleagueship, a a special bond of affection with these elders. And and it is not easy being an elder. It's not easy being an elder. Uh, In fact, you might lose your friends if you become an elder. Because uh, it seems that no matter what you say or what you do, someone's angry at you. So, Peter fully sympathizes with their dangers, their problems. He empathizes with them. He's a seasoned veteran shepherd elder. He's been in spiritual warfare. He knows all the practical problems. And so he says, I am a fellow elder with you. Many witnesses of the suffering of Christ. What he means here is not the uh, substitutionary sufferings of Christ, atoning sufferings, but uh, it's Second Corinthians uh, one five. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, uh, what he's talking about here is the suffering that really uh, uh, Philippians says we've been called to suffer on Christ's behalf. So they have suffered. Christians suffer. Christ promised suffering. He didn't promise your best life now. He promised your best life future, which we'll look at in just a moment. He said, I've suffered. I've shared in the sufferings for Christ and what, what this is all about. Christ promises suffering and rejection. And he has faced all that. He's faced it in Rome. He'll be, he'll be martyred very shortly. And he faced it in Jerusalem. They, they Remember, they tried to kill him a couple of times. And one time, very supernaturally, an angel released him. James had been killed. And then a partaker of the glory to be revealed. Now, we're going to pick up on this in, in a moment, why I picked this passage. The joyous anticipation of the glory will be revealed in Christ's return. It's a very, very encouraging word to people who are suffering. If you remember the Romanian believers, I don't know how many of you remember back in the days of Ceausescu, the communist leader in Romania. Oh, the believers were suffering so much, so much. And those who went there, there were numbers of believers who went to many assemblies in Romania, by the way. There were believers that went there, brought blankets and light bulbs. They didn't have light bulbs and enough food. And uh, one of my friends who went there many times uh, during the uh, during the 60s and 70s under the terrible, terrible oppression, hostility against the believers, he said the believers constantly talked about the Lord's return constantly talked about the Lord's return. We don't talk about that much. Well, it's pretty nice here. Weather's awful nice right now. And we drive nice cars and you eat a lot of nice meals, maybe too many meals. But the believers didn't have anything. And so their only hope was the Lord's return. And so uh, uh, Peter is saying, now listen, I'm a fellow elder. I've shared in the suffering that you've shared in and Christ shared in. Uh, But listen, we're all going to share in the glory 
indescribable. David, it's not describable. Don't even try. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. And it's not even entered the mind of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. So you can't even think it up. Sorry. So anyway, he says, we'll, we'll share together in that blessed day, and he's going to pick up on this theme later. Now, what's his exhortation? The main exhortation is this. Shepherd, I have a look up here. Um, shepherd, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What he's asking the uh, elders to do is their job. Be what a shepherd should be. Do the job of shepherd. He uses the imperative here. He knows if these shepherds don't shepherd the church, the churches are going to be in trouble. Very easily they could split apart. Very easily they could run in fear. Very easily they may not want to meet together. Very easily they could get very discouraged and say, is it worth it being a Christian? Can't even get a job and and we can't get invited to the feast and our neighbors don't like us and our relatives don't like us. So you've got to shepherd the sheep. Now, if I had a lot of time, I would talk about sheep and shepherds. Beautiful, beautiful imagery. Couldn't pick more beautiful imagery. Because we really are like sheep. You think we're like sheep? I think we're like sheep. And uh, the the unusual relationship between sheep and shepherds. So one, one, one point. We talk about many points. One point is this. The presence of the shepherd. This is amazing. When the shepherd is there, the sheep rest. They drink, they eat. Shepherd's not there. They know something's wrong. They can't relax. This is a story from Germany. I was there in October. They told me, I got it now. Trans, I have this story. So in Germany, uh, a shepherd had, if you go to Germany, you'll see sheep and shepherds. We don't see that here in America. And a shepherd came to the fold in the morning, 112 sheep stolen in the night. 112 sheep. Keep that in mind. So they call the police and they're looking and someone said, you know, in two days, out of, uh, let's just say Cologne, uh, thousands of sheep are going to be shipped off. Why don't you go there to see if your sheep were stolen and are going to be shipped away? So the man says to him, well, there's going to be over a thousand sheep there. How will you know your sheep? He says, don't worry about that. And so they go to uh, Cologne and they uh, go to where all the sheep are in pens and they're going to be shipped off. And the shepherd comes and he yells out for a sheep. He blows his whistle. 112 sheep come out. <laughs> this is in the paper. I've got it. A friend of mine translated it for me. The shepherd-sheep relationship is a real thing. Think of that in the local church. Your presence is needed. So, I would like to say something to shepherds here. Shepherds, never underestimate your influence. Never underestimate your influence. Just being there, talking to people, giving them a big hug, encouraging them. It's it's far more important than you actually realize. Your presence. Use your presence. Use your influence. Ask Christians, are you reading your Bible? How are you doing? Are you spending too much time on the computer? Uh... Don't be afraid to do these things. The sheep expect it. So, in a sense, we could say many things of what this shepherding means. It means leading, it means feeding, it means guarding, it means uh, caring for. But I just want to emphasize one thing. The shepherd's presence. The sheep relax. You go out to dinner with him. You, you have a little treat with him. You get together like tonight. 
important things are happening between the people and their shepherds. So the shepherd is needed. The shepherd is needed. The man who started our church was Mr. Herb Banks, a very unusual man. And uh, he started his church in, our, in his home, just like this. And uh, our church grew from his home. One of the most wonderful shepherds I ever met. And uh, us who learned from Herb as uh, his trainees learned his diligence and his conscientiousness. It's interesting. When he wasn't around, where's Herb? Where's Herb, where's Herb tonight? It's like, he's always here. He, people would actually, I remember once going to a picnic, he wasn't there, people, everyone's, where's Herb and Alice Banks? Where are the Banks? You know, it's like, like they're panicking or something. Well, maybe they had something else. You know, they do have a life, you know. Interesting how the people knew if they were there or not there. So don't forget the shepherd's presence and don't underestimate your influence in the local church. Don't say, well, I'm, I'm not a teacher and that. Well, you may not be a, a good teacher or a platform teacher, but your love for the sheep and your presence in the sheep and your encouragement to the sheep, very, very important to them. So what, what uh, Peter is saying is, men, do the job. You're needed. Be on the line. Be there. Lead them. Feed them. Care for them. Very, very important. I have a cataract on this left eye, which is going to be removed sometime, but I had another operation, but so I have a hard time seeing at a certain distance. But it's going to be all well. It's going to be all well. They're going to go in, drill holes in my head, and uh, make it well. So, But right now, it's a little hard to see out of my left eye. All right, so shepherd the flock of God. Now, it's not the shepherd's flock. They don't own a single one of them. Not one of those shepherds gave their blood for the sheep. Uh, it's God's flock, and Paul emphasized that in Acts 20. So that changes everything, doesn't it? Because it's his flock. He paid for it with the blood of his own son. And uh, it's of infinite value to him. So remember whose, whose sheep you're, you're tending. God's. And you know, sometimes you look out at the sheep and you go, oh, there's so many problems, so many troubled people. Remember, the Lord loves them. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for the church. So sometimes you get really discouraged with the sheep. Everyone does. You just go, I have to go over this again and again, the same old, same old problems. Just remember, they're the Lord's people. They're the Lord's sheep. The Lord paid for them. He's going to see them through to glory. You do your job. You do your job. And it wasn't easy for the Lord to deal with you either. So the flock of God, that should change everything, our perspective. Because I, I meet many shepherds. They get in their 40s, 50s, 60s. They want to quit. I'm tired. Just remember, you have a great privilege of shepherding God's flock, not the country's or yours. That is among you, exercising oversight. Very similar idea to shepherding. Uh, oversight is the literal word. Shepherding is the metaphorical, figurative word. Uh, both uh, emphasize the watching over, the attending to. Now, he tells us how and how not to do this. I'm actually moving towards... Uh, I have to move fast because I want to get towards the end of this more. How not to do it, how to do it. Right attitude, wrong attitude. Right motivation, wrong motivation. A series of contrasts. All right, not under compulsion. Oh, Calvin, Calvin, won't you please, please, won't you, Calvin, please. Didn't your wife want you to be an elder? 
you know, we're voting for you to be an elder. That's under compulsion. So Calvin says, I'll be an elder. But we, we basically forced them. You know, we embarrassed them into it. And sometimes wives do that to their husbands. All oh, my friends, their husbands are elders in the church. You be an elder. I don't really want to be with you. know you to be an elder. Okay, I'll be an elder. Or you get a Friday night phone call. You know, hey, you want to be one of the elders? Sure, I have nothing else to do. So, no, not under compulsion. In other words, feel forced. Feel forced. Feel constrained. I don't know if I don't do it, people are going to be really ticked at me. In fact, I went through this with one of my closest colleagues when he stepped down as an elder. He was a fantastic elder. He's still in the church serving, serving, serving. But when he uh, stepped down, he was tired, and he had reasons for why he was tired. And, uh, boy, I, I really wanted to tell him, no, don't do this. I need you. I'm, we're co-partners. We're together for many years, almost 50 years. Please don't do this to me. But I had to, I had to resist that. I just say to him, okay. God's will be done. You have to do what the Lord wants. But willingly, voluntarily, from the heart, as God would have it. In other words, uh, God loves a cheerful giver. God wants you to do this willingly. God is not interested in a bunch of four shepherds. Well, first of all, you won't laugh. The job's way too hard. Uh, You're going to be picked apart from the seams. And uh, uh, your best friends may turn on you. And uh, people uh, have, uh, like Moses, the children of Israel, constantly complained about him. That poor man. You ever read Numbers chapter 11? He says, oh God, what have I done to deserve these people? Take my life. So if you ever want to die, that's okay. Moses, you're in good company. Moses wanted to die. He said, take my life. That's how hard it was to deal with the children of Israel. A rotten group of people, if there ever was one. So... Uh, do it willingly because you'll never last. You'll never last if it isn't voluntarily and that's how God would have it. God wants, doesn't want four shepherds. Not for shameful gain. Now, I don't want to go into this too much but you may not realize this but throughout the world there are many people who do this job to get close to the money. And I've collected over the years many, many articles, newspaper articles, magazine articles on people caught stealing or pilfering church money. It's much more common than you realize. That's the hireling. And in poorer cultures where they really have nothing, stealing church offerings is probably going to happen most of the times. Not for its game that you doesn't belong to you. Now, in America... Most times we don't just steal the offering. We're, we're a little too smart for that. And it is a criminal act. But we, uh, we, uh, we take the money in a different way that's not ours by, you know, we, the, we have a church credit card and we take people to nice dinners. And in, in, in Denver, a man got caught, one of the pastors caught, golfing every week on the church's money. And he said, well, it's part of the ministry. Part of the ministry. So I need gasoline for my car or coming down to Florida here is awfully nice. I get the church credit card. I'm ministering. Am I not ministering? And so I'm going to take Calvin out. We'll go to a nice place. Maybe the Ritz-Carlton or something. There's ways, inappropriate ways of using the Lord's money. And you can get away with it because it's actually not illegal, but it's not ethical. It's not ethical. You should never spend church money that hasn't been agreed by the body. So, there's way to pilfer money, and there's way to misappropriate money uh, to uh, get you more gasoline and some nice dinners. 
In fact, in our church, we do have a little budget for uh, lunches and that, but it's very limited, and it's all, all, all receipts have to be turned in, and it's agreed upon. It's agreed upon. No one can just take the church credit card and go out and get some nice dinners. So, even bad dinners. But eagerly. Now, eagerly has the des- idea of desire. It's a stronger word than, the, than the, what we saw in willingly. And it, it, it's earnestly from the heart and from the, uh, from, the, from the deepest part of your being. So there needs to be a sense of uh, d- deep desire for this. Eagerly. Because if you don't do it eagerly, again, you will not last. Now, uh, David was using a little different translation. Mine says, it's the ESV, not domineering over those in your charge. He read lording it over. Actually, lording it over is the exact translation of it. Not lording it over domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So, I just get a, an email just uh, about a week ago from an assembly in Australia, and the man writes me, uh, very concerned, because the elders went on a retreat together, and they came back and announced on Sunday morning to the congregation that there will now be women elders, and in June, a woman will be our, our Bible teacher. And 25% of the assembly freaks out. But the elders said this, there is no discussion of this. If you talk about this, we will discipline you for gossip and backbite. So this man writes me, what do we do? That's domineering leadership. No major decision should ever be made in a church without the church praying, without the church participating in a decision, without going through what time is needed. And yet, worldwide, it's amazing how many leaders are control freaks. And they lord it over people. They dominate the congregation. In fact, uh, where's our brother Alan from India? Uh, this is a big debate in India. Alan, this is a big debate in India now. A book has been written on this, and they had me try to respond to this book. But the book is trying to uh, stop dominating leadership where the congregations never uh, consulted, no one ever asked anything. The elders just dropped down these decisions, like in Australia. Terrible decision, by the way. Uh, no, that's not the kind of leadership in the Lord's house. Uh, we don't abuse people or dominate people. They're our brothers. We're, elders are our brothers and we're all brothers and sisters together. It's, a, it's a, a brotherhood and a sisterhood. But being examples to the flock. This is an interesting contrast. Don't be abusive to people. Don't be domineering. Don't be controlling. There's so many control freaks. People get into positions of authority and they abuse their authority. It becomes uh, autocratic and authoritarian. But be an example. Now, real quickly, this is very interesting. What kind of leadership impacts people in the long term? Telling people, you better do this. I command it. I think I'm scaring Calvin. You scared? <laughs> Not too scared. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. All right. Um, you can't buy this kind of car, or you can't do this. The kind of leadership that impacts people for a lifetime is really modeling, role modeling. So I go back in my memory. All right, you're going to take. I'm going to take you back. Uh, I'm taking you back to 1960. In 1960, I I was in the Presbyterian Church. My dad finally let me leave the Presbyterian Church. No one was saved. I could see that right away. There's no Bible open. This nice social club. So in 1960, I was saved through the Brethren uh, Bible Camp in New York. So there were people there I knew, and they 
said, we'll come pick you up. They came pick me up every Sunday, every Wednesday night for church. Never missed Sunday. Loved it. But anyway, uh, there are very godly men in that church. Very godly men. And I can remember, I'm, I'm doing it now in my mind. I go back to that little, it was a small assembly, you know, maybe 50 people, maybe even less. And I can see them praying on, on the Lord's Day. I can see them, how they dress, how they, how they look, how they cared for me. I can think of the meals I had at a certain family. They took me in like a son. And the man who picked me up faithfully for five years picked me up and brought me to church and his children. He died a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, they, I don't know if they made any commands to me. I don't even remember any of the sermons. You know what I remember? Their example. That's what I remember. You know, if you were to ask my four children, what was your favorite sermon your dad preached? They'd go, oh, oh, oh. You know, I just can't think. It was so many good ones. It was just, you know, it's hard to pick. <laughs> All right. I know. They, I ought to try this sometime. Marilyn, you do this. Ask them, what's your favorite sermon dad gave? I guarantee you they can't come up with one. But ask any of my children, uh, what was life in your home? What was your dad like? Well, they, they would elaborate on dad and mom. That's what they remember. They remember our example as dad and mom. Because they had to live with us every day for years. Really, what Peter is saying is, you're not going to get far by saying to people, i got a badge, I'm an elder, I'm a deacon, I'm a bishop, whatever. What influences people in real leadership is example. Example. Godly example. Faithful example to the truth. Uh, that's what sticks in the mind for years to come. So this is the kind of leadership, and it goes along with what our Lord said uh, in uh, Matthew 23. Uh, we're not to be like the leaders of this world. Uh, we're, we, are, we are to be different. We're brothers. And so your example is very, very important. And remember this. People are watching you. Your children are watching you. Your grandchildren are watching you. Uh, your fellow elders are watching you. The people in your church are wa- they're watching you when you pray, when you sing, when you worship. They're watching you, uh, watching you when you give, how you dress, how you uh, conduct yourself under pressure. And when people tell you off and maybe even spit at you or strike you or grab you by the throat. One time, man, I mean, by the throat against the wall. They're watching those things. What do you like? That's what's going to stick in the mind. That's what's going to make you a good leader, a good godly example. And Paul talks about this repeatedly. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. Alright, now, this is where I want to go with, with, to help us with our particular subject. Our particular subject. When the chief shepherd appears. A very beautiful phrase. So, he says to these men, shepherd the church of God. So they're shepherds. But there's a chief shepherd. So, they're not the chief shepherd. They're not the clergy. There is a chief shepherd. Now, in many churches, they use senior pastors. Terrible term. There's only one senior pastor. Who's that? It's the Lord Jesus. How can a man take on that title? I'm the senior pastor. Some of them are only 23, 24 years old. I'm the senior pastor. They're not senior anything. You could translate this to senior pastors. Nothing wrong with that. Maybe if we, maybe if in Acts twenty twenty eight we had translated the word shepherd pastor, people would get it. Elders, or even here, elders pastor the church. Jesus is the only senior pastor. Maybe they would get it. I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't. When the senior 
shepherd appears. Now that comes back to what uh, Peter has said throughout this book. You know, it's the great teaching, suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. He's actually been doing that all through this book, and he does it here in verse one. Uh, we're going to. Uh, I've shared in the sufferings of Christ, just like you have. Anything you've been through, I've been through, and I'm also a, a partner with you in the glory to be revealed. Now, this glory to be revealed is not the general glory he's talking about. All Christians will experience. This is a special reward for shepherds who have put up with the sheep, maybe been abused, maybe been put down and never recognized or ever told, we appreciate what you do. Some of us might pass out on the ground if someone ever said that. We really appreciate all you do for us. Uh, Be careful, get a heart attack there. When the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, there is a special acknowledgement here, and this is to be a motivation, an assurance, and a promise that everything you have done, it will not be overlooked. Revelation 2, right? The Lord says to the church at Ephesus, I know your works. It doesn't say, I guess, I think, possibly. I know your works. You know, I can't remember what I did last week. Seriously part of getting older. I'm not losing my hair, I'm losing my mind. I, if you said, what did you do five years ago? Forget it. What did you do yesterday? I have to write things down in my uh, daytime or I'll forget. So anyway, the Lord forgets nothing. Every little act of cold water, He remembers. Every prayer you make, He remembers. That's what He says. I know your works. And He promises to reward all those works, however insignificant in our side. Things we'll never remember. He will appear, the Lord will appear. That's a basic Christian teaching. Cannot be in the Christian faith uh, in any orthodox sense without believing in the Lord's return. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now this is, the crown is uh, the metaphor. The glory is the reality. But notice the kind of crown this is. It's an unfading crown. So if you have gold, it tarnishes. If you have ivy, it just wilts. This is a crown that does not fade. And it reminds me, really, of 1 Peter. Go back to chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. In chapter 1, he says here in verse 4, to an inheritance... Oh, boy, there's nothing like receiving an inheritance. Boy, oh, boy. Okay. To an inheritance that is imperishable. You know, I've known a number of people in our church. Sometimes I wonder how dumb they are. One couple get an inheritance and they spend it within two weeks. What can you say? All right. This inheritance, however, is imperishable. You can't blow it. It's undefiled, unfading. Uh, it's, it's not in the armor brinks uh, carrier. Uh, kept in heaven for you. Well, now here's a reward that's unfading. You're not going to lose this reward. You're not going to lose this crown. It's safe in the Lord's hands, and He will give it. You will receive it from the Lord. A crown. Now. The glory tells us what the crown is made of. It's made of glory. 
what is glory? Well, glory, actually, we can't even explain it. It's something the Lord shares with us because He receives glory when He comes back. And we will receive something of praise and honor, acknowledgement, uh, the the full uh, reward for everything you have done as a shepherd and sacrifice. And some shepherds have died for the sheep or ruined their health for the sheep. It will be glorious. It will be unfading. And at that moment, you will be glad for everything you did. You'd say, I wish I'd done more. So, in light of the difficulty of this job, in the light of that you may be the first targets of the devil's uh, uh, arrows at the church, and you may not receive much reward here on earth, uh, you have to keep the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the chief shepherd, he will give you a crown, it's unfading, of glory. Something in which he will share with us of his own, own glory. We need to keep that before us. I don't think we keep that before us, the reward day for the shepherd. And I know at that day, the Lord's no man's debtor. You will be very delighted with what the Lord's glory that he will give you, the crown he will give you. Many of us are working for crowns that really fade real fast. So often we... Uh, we really want worldly things and we're very happy with the worldly uh, crowns and the worldly rewards but all of them fade and at the end of life when you enter eternity they're absolutely worthless <coughs> a very wealthy man in Texas died and he said how much did he leave? everything you leave it all here but that's not true of the Christian for his rewards this is taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 there is a reward day our works will be tried so is by fire. That's a basic Christian teaching. Second Corinthians chapter 5. We're also told the same thing. That our rewards will be tested. And that's why Paul says uh, there's hay, wood, and stubble, and gold, and silver. Make sure your rewards aren't burned up. Irretrievable loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is no man's debtor. He, he will acknowledge everything you've done for his glory and for his little sheep. Even the hard sheep. Now, likewise, you who are younger. All right, there are some younger ones here. Hey, guy, don't go to sleep out there. I'm watching you. I can see you. I don't think I can. I can see right through David's head. Yeah. When he turns sideways, I see through his ears. Okay. All right. Now, you younger ones, you younger ones, be subject to the elders. All good leaders know how to submit to leaders. All good leaders have submitted to those above them. That's how you get your best training. Let me tell you a great story why younger people have to learn to submit. And remember, all human leaders are fallible and they all got problems. I could pick apart every elder in our church. Not myself, but everyone else. <laughs> you all know Hudson Taylor, one of the greatest missionaries of all modern times did the impossible, having almost a thousand missionaries in the interior of China. Well, Hudson Taylor was in his mid-70s. He was completely worn out. He was in Switzerland. Didn't have much more time to live. And it was time to appoint a director of the famous China Inland Mission. Which, what it means, the China Inland Mission, is missionaries all stayed on the coast of China. None could go in the interior. His goal was to see missionaries in the interior of China, which they saw over a thousand in the interior of China. 
one of the greatest faith works ever in history. So anyway, at the end of his life, he appoints a man who's in his mid-30s as the director of this very large faith mission, D.E. Host. And there's a biography, if you ever can get it, it's out of print, it's terrible. D.E. Host, A Prince with God. And it's about his life, oh, an amazing life of prayer. So anyway, uh, Hudson Taylor's close colleagues who had been with him for 40 years, 30 years, said, why did you appoint this young man the head of the mission? Why not one of the uh, senior members? Hudson Taylor said two reasons. One is he's young. He'll carry the mission another 30 years. He carried it 35 more years. The other men were old and they didn't have 35 years. But the second reason he appointed him over the, over the uh, mission is he said he knows how to submit to the Chinese. D.E. Host worked with one of the most difficult Chinese pastor, Pastor Hassad. There's a biography that still exists on Pastor Hassad. Very uh, powerful, powerful man, very autocratic, very dominating, but a godly man at the same time. We're all mixed packages. And Pastor Hassad loved D.E. Host. And for 10 years, D.E. Host worked under his leadership. And Hudson Taylor said, if that man can work under the leadership of Pastor Osai, he will be the man to lead our mission because they've got to work with the Chinese. It cannot be just a British thing. Now, notice what Peter says. Peter telling us some good things about leadership, by the way. Got to be a willing leader. Uh, you have to know how to submit to people above you. So he says, now you younger ones. Now, the reason he picks on the younger ones here is this is often true in a church. This is the group that's coming up. They're not elders yet. Maybe they're very energetic and they usually complain about the elders. Okay? <laughs> this happened in our church. That's true. They're very busy. They see the problems of the elders. The elders are not moving fast enough. They're moving too fast. They're too slow. They're too fast. The music's too loud. The music's too soft. All that. So it's a, it's a natural conflict between the up-and-coming young men and the elders. But he says, submit to the elders. Subject to your elders. That's how you'll learn real leadership. If you can't submit to others, you will not be a good leader. You'll probably be a dominating leader that will hurt people. I worked for many decades under Mr. Herb Banks. And uh, he was an a, a unusual man. Great administrator. I learned so much about administration. So we'd have lunch every other week. And he'd pull out his famous 3 by 5 cards. He didn't have a computer in those days. and <laughs> would never use it anyway. And he'd have this 3 by 5 card. It was a list of things he gave me to do. Just do. So I learned, get my 3 by 5 card out. What does he want me to do? Write it down. I never argued with him. Not one time. One time, almost 40 years. Never once argued with him and said to him, no, I'm not doing that. Just do it. I'll just do it. It's no, no big deal. Get it done. Call this person. Do that. He, had, he was very busy. And then I had been full, made full time at that time. She said, these are things that need to be done. Just do it. So, submitted many years to uh, a very a key leader. Learned many things about uh, management of people and an eye for people. Ooh, he had an eye for people. If you weren't there two, three weeks, he, he'd know they'd say, you know, uh, Al Mahler's missing. I wonder what's wrong. So, Herb is dying of cancer at 85. There's nothing but skin and bones on him. And three of us elders go to his house and we sing with him and pray with him. He's got weeks to live. I'll tell you two stories about him. But one is, so we, we pray with him and he's sitting there and he has a beautiful baritone voice, even right to the end of his life. So anyway, we get done with all this and he pulls out his car from his pajamas and he says, I want someone to call Al Mater. There is something wrong here. And 
we, we all have to refrain from laughing. We all have to refrain from You know, we have a shepherd's eye. I learned to get a shepherd's eye from her banks. We'll do that. So anyway, one of the other elders visits him a few days later, and he's sitting in bed with his legs up reading a book. He's about two weeks away from death. And the elder says to him, he says, Herb, what are you reading? He says, I'm reading a book on missions. <laughs> on missions? I mean, shouldn't he read a book on how to have a good funeral or where to buy a good casket? Um, uh, how to have your friends praise you when you're dead? <laughs> he's reading a book on missions and he's going to die. I like to use him as an example. I'm going to use him as an example tomorrow night on pressing on to the end. He pressed on right to the end. So, so anyway, you younger men, you learn, even under the worst leaders, you'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot if you just learn to submit and uh, cooperate. Now i got to find my one eye here where I am. Okay. Now notice he talks to the elders too. You're not getting out elders on this one. Alright. Clothe yourselves, all of you, elders, younger men, with humility. It's the only way we could ever live together. Now, what is your name again? Luke. Luke. Good name. Third gospel. Alright, Luke. Do you mind if I tell you how to dress to go, when you go to church? Do you mind if I tell you how to dress? Kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't like it, do you? Yeah. No. Would you mind if I tell you how to dress to go to church? Uh, yeah, but I'm going to tell you. Always clothe yourself with humility. <laughs> <laughs> I was at a church. It was a whole row of these young guys, you know. And uh, I said to them, you guys, I'm going to tell you how to dress for church. Every one of them go, no, you're not. No, you're not. I said, yes, I am. I'm going to tell And the whole audience is watching. No, no, you're not going to tell us how to dress. I said, put on the clothes of humility or don't go to church. And they go, oh, you're joking. You're joking. Anyway, that's what he says here. Clothe yourselves or don't go to church with humility. And then all of you, the elders must be humble. Young people must be humble because we're proud creatures, all of us. We're stubborn, proud, selfish creatures. This is the only way we can ever live together is with humility. So hard to fight with humble people. But proud people, they're prepared to fight and defend themselves at the drop of a hat. Now, remember this. When persecution comes, it can break a church apart. People can turn on each other. People got their opinion how to handle these things. So, they'll never stand unless they stand together. That's why you have all these exhortations to love and humility because the apostles know if these people don't stand together. Same thing's true today. How can we stand against the secular tsunami? No one here hardly can stand alone. Together we can our children could never stand against the school and the and the, the internet and the TV and the movies they're seeing. There's no way they could stand. They'd be walked away. Bye-bye. But together we can stand. With mom and dad, the church, the youth group, we stand together. But we can't stand together unless we have humility towards one another. So it's a, it's a one, it's a, each to another. For God opposes the proud. You don't want God to oppose you. That's bad news. And gives grace to the humble. So, he's giving us such important counsel here. How to get along with one another. So, we need, we need people stepping up to the plate. Young people need to be preparing themselves, caring for God's house and God's sheep. I think a big mistake is, we go after people in their 40s and 50s. Oh, you want to be an elder. 
I'm finding if you want future missionaries, future elders, future shepherds, start in their teens. That's where you start, in their teens. Give them a good biography to read. Like Hudson Taylor's. Well, don't use Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. It's too hard to read. There's new biographies on Hudson Taylor's life. 14, 15-year-olds, put some good biographies in their hands. Let them see the Lord's work. Let them get challenged. Young people need to be challenged. They, they, you know, they got too much energy. Now, you want to know if you're young or old. Maybe you want to know if you're young or old. Who am I talking to? Here's how you can tell. It's uh, it's quarter after eight. By eight thirty, nine o'clock. If you are thinking of going to bed and you can't wait to get into bed, you're old. <laughs> if at ten o'clock at night we were in a home where a whole bunch of young people in their early twenties were in the home, right, Marilyn? What about six or seven of them? We went to bed at ten o'clock. They all went out to have pizza or do something. Came in about twelve thirty. Then you're young. Okay, that's that's the dividing line. So I'm I'm not going out for pizza with you, Calvin, at eleven o'clock at night. Or some of them go out and play soccer at eleven o'clock at night. Okay, I can't remember those days, but I'm sure it was like that. <clears throat> we need to challenge young people. They got too much energy. The world is challenging them. So we need to challenge them to serve the Lord with their life. Get out on on short-term missions things. Read some good books. Challenge them about what they're watching on TV. Don't be afraid to do that. Just ask them, what, what are you watching? Should you watch that? We're going to talk about this tomorrow night. Weights. Weights. Not actual sins, but weights that bog us down in the Christian life. And the writer of Hebrews says, you know, lay aside every weight. And then, of course, lay aside every sin. Because <laughs> sin clings to you. You can't run the race with sin. But weights hold you down too. Weights are things that are not sinful, but they'll impede your walk with the Lord. So we need to challenge our young people. Don't be afraid to challenge them. And put them to work. Have them go to people's houses and help. Make them serve. Don't just give them parties all the time. They need parties too. So we've got to go after them in the teen years, early 20s in their college. And just challenge them. We need you. The Church of Jesus Christ needs you. Missionaries are coming off the field in droves right now. We see it in our own assembly. Where are the recruits? Well, they're afraid of the world because the world's very hostile and many of them are very comfortable here. We're not seeing the missionaries being replaced today. And you ask any missions expert, they'll tell you that. Where Where's this next generation going to come from? Well, the same thing in our churches. Where's the next generation of elders? So... Will they care? Will they care? Or they're, they're six months, serve the Lord for six months, that kind of people. No, eldership's a long-term deal. It takes a number of years to pay your dues and have respect by the congregation for your elder, or, or people won't listen to you. Remember, they watch example. So, if you love them, they'll love you. And holding up a badge doesn't do it. So, we need to really pray about this. The next generation of elders, the next generation of Sunday school teachers, next generation of missionaries, writers, speakers. So many of the, the great names have just passed off the scene. So, so a little time for questions, and I know I'm running late. Anyone have any questions? Remember, the Apostle Paul spoke to midnight, and then they spoke the rest of the evening. Don't forget that. <laughs> What comes to mind for you when you see that there are some assemblies that are, you know, they, they're dying or going away, being sold or lost, you know, they've come down to a few people and then they just kind of dissipate. What, what are some of the things you think can be done or that you've seen 
throughout the country, the world, that, um, you know, without going, you, you said you, you see so much secular stuff coming into the church, obviously we don't want that, but we're dealing with so much, so many secular people. What, what do you see, you know, other than growing from organically within, is anything that you see that... Okay, now there are several questions there. Uh, you want to let's start with the first question. Well, I just I hear about assemblies that are dying. We hear that from like a lot of people that come and speak at our church. Say, well, you guys are really fortunate. You have a lot of young people. We visit a lot of assemblies that they don't they don't have that. Okay, let's stop right there. Okay, so you have a number of young people in your assembly. Uh, don't take that for granted. Yeah. Challenge them. Work with them. Um, let them know there's a place for you here. We want you here. So I come to the assembly uh, in Littleton, and I had been to an assembly before. Uh, I had come to Colorado for only three months, that's 48 years ago or 49 years ago. Um, but I, I went to an assembly there, going to school. I was in school there. I'd go to an assembly near the school. After three months, I just couldn't take it. And then friends invited me to this other assembly, which was farther away. So I was there, I loved it right away the first week, I saw something different. So I'm there maybe two months, and Herb Banks takes me to lunch, and he says, we want you to stay here. There's a place for you here. We need people like you. So here I am, months there, and he's throwing a challenge to me. We need you. We need people like you. We're looking. Now, he could have said, you know, I'm the boss here. I don't want to be challenged by young bucks. Oh, no. You're good for the assembly? He pushed you, push you forward. Did the same for David McLeod and others. Always thinking of the assembly. So you have some young people, You've got to put responsibilities on them, tell them you're needed, uh, bear the burden, have lunches with them, make sure they're studying their Bible, because um, they'll slip out of your hand real fast. So if you have this, you've got a heavy responsibility to uh, work with them and uh, disciple them. And you might ask yourself that question, what are you doing to foster their commitment to the local assembly and they'll come back and help we just have to challenge them camp work going on a missions trip giving them books to read tell them I'm, I'm going to check on you we're going to go to lunch one of the best trainers I ever met of young people who trained me too uh, was Mr. Paul B. Sapp he was out of Mayus for a short while head of our camp for a long while and always taking young people to lunch taking them to lunch challenging them Praying with them. It's very interesting what we do. You go to lunch with them, after you have lunch, let's pray for some missionaries. And uh, so things like that you have to do with them. Open doors for them. Get them teaching in a Sunday school class, something like that. So so don't take for granted that you have a number of young people. Really foster that ministry and say you're the future. The future comes real fast, real fast. The, the young people that were at my church when I first came, and uh, they're all grandparents today. They're grandparents, so. And again, we're always thinking for 30, 40, 50. No, go after when they're teenagers, when they're young, be, before the world gets them and they're tied down. And those early college years, very important. So. And they know if you show interest in them. So. I think part of what could be an answer to uh, Luke's uh, continued question would be the question, if there are so few people left and there are no young people coming in, 
What are the reasons for it? Could you say what the most common reasons are? Well, first of all, at that point, it's almost too late. Um, if no one's, you know, as as the assembly gets smaller and smaller, and there's no children or young people, it's very hard to get people to come. You either have to do some kind of restart, which we are actually going to start in September. Uh, there's an assembly right near us, eight miles away. Lovely building. They're down to 20 people. So in September, we're going to come in with a group of people. In fact, I said I would go for six months. That's all. Six months. A year of the actual mats. Uh, just to be there. Just to be there. I don't need to preach. Got some good preachers. But to sort of negotiate between the 20 that are there and the others. So that's a restart. You could do something like that. I think it's a good idea what they've done. Rather than sell the building, we asked them not to sell the building. It would be terrible. Buildings are impossible to get today because of the cost of things. So uh, maybe you could ask another assembly to come in or uh, find some people, hold your beliefs. and uh, It's going to be different in each assembly, uh, different each, uh, and sometimes it just can't be done. you know. But I would try to do everything not to sell the building. Uh, in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, they got into a big fight, a lovely assembly there, beautiful building. They got into a big fight, and we tried to help. A couple assemblies, we tried to help. Said, don't do this. Well, they did it, and now they're sorry they did it. You know, they, you know people get all upset about something or something. So if you have a building that's a big uh, addition, try your best to continue and see what, go to stewards. See if stewards will give you some money to help get a evangelist in. So we have a young man, a very talented young man. So we're we're trying to raise some money that he'll come in full time. I don't need the money. I'll be there to help him, mentor him. But we need someone to be working the streets, working, preaching, <coughs> reaching out constantly. So it's a lot of work. Every situation is going to be different. A lot of it depends on what the people are able to give on. You know, maybe they just can't can't give at all. You know. Because if you're going to do a restart, you're going to have to give. You're going to have to do different things. So it's not an easy question to answer in a moment like this. Each situation really is different. Any other questions? Or we're going to have a, looks to me like a lot of neat food in there. I have a question of of sorts. Maybe a common question. Um, Maybe just looking for feedback. But you mentioned... um, the busyness of people's yeah. schedules. And you mentioned it in the sense, kind of in a, in a negative light in the sense, right, that it's a massive challenge. Yeah. In another sense, you did mention like your son-in-laws and their commitments. So I've had a couple of godly men, uh, itinerant workers included, um, talk to me about how um, it's almost as if like the, the, like the elder or older generation needs a uh, a slight shift in mindset, knowing that what was 40 years, uh, 40 hours a week years ago, is now not that 60 hours a week or, or more. So, how do you deal with that in your home assembly? I mean, do we oh. need to cut out meetings because people are so busy? Oh, and they I'm can't so glad make you brought it? that or? up. You got to balance out what people say. Very good. So, about 10, 15 years ago, we could not find elders. We, we were making public announcements. We were saying, pray about this. And we had the people there. There were good men there. They did not want to step up to the plate. Their wives were terrified. Of course, our elders had set a very high standard. And their wives looked like, you'll never see my husband again. I'll be a church widow, you know. So what were we going to do about this? 
So what we did is we got more aggressive with this. So we targeted men that we knew were totally qualified, had all the credentials, and we met with the family. We said, we are promising you we will not destroy your husband. We will even set out the hours. We went around to key families in our church like this. And within a year, we were able to bring on some very good men who were still on the eldership, by the way. Um, What we had to do is relieve their fears. Now, if you're going to be an elder in the church and you're a modern man with a modern job, which are very demanding today, you're going to have to strategize about your life and your schedule. You're going to have to say no to things. There's just no way around that. Because they have to have time in the Word to prepare themselves. Uh, they have to have time with their family. You don't want them to lose their family. All right, so I'm going to tell you what one of the elders told me just months ago. This uh, brother works for Janus, the insurance company, uh, not insurance, investment company. So he's got a big job. He's got three children. And he preaches about every six or seven weeks. He's a good preacher, very intelligent fellow. So he said to me about three months ago, in order to get the time I need for my preparation and Bible study, I gave up the Denver Broncos. Now, he loves the Broncos. That's a football team. He said, I, I, I lose four hours there, four hours there, almost every week. And then other things. I, I said, wow, I'm shocked. I said, this is an unbelievable story. There's going to be sacrifice. You're going to have to be really ruthless with your schedule. You're going to have to say no to other things. We have to be reasonable with one another. Mm-hmm. So I can see one of my son-in-laws as being a very good elder in a couple of years, but he's very, very busy with the business that he's in, and we talk about this all the time. You can't lose your family. You've got to keep... He, he works with the college and career. So... He's got to uh, be well, well uh, disciplined in his time and uh, be honest before the family, not to be gone too much. So we have to really be strategic about this in our very busy society. Our society is tearing families apart. I think we need to address these things publicly. We need to give people suggestions and ideas. By the way, there are books that give you ideas on even the secular world knows something's wrong. We're too busy. The sec- I, I, I've seen a lot of magazines. So there are good books, like Dr. Swenson's book, The Overload Syndrome, which he gives. He's a medical doctor. So you get guys like uh, that are medical doctors. They're very busy, but they're elder in the church and they have a family. He gives you suggestions of how you do this. You double up on things. So, for example, on Wednesday night, we do visiting. So... At the same time, a one is going on. So we got a one going on, and then a number of us are going out visiting. I go out visiting to train some of these guys. So we don't want them out another night, because I challenge them a couple nights home with your Bible and your family. And it means saying no to a lot of activities that maybe you would like to do, like going out, like, this might sound silly to you, but uh, some men, uh, they love uh, two nights a week out at soccer. Or one is one night a week out their pong, uh, ping pong club. I said, you know, frankly, you may have to give that up. I can't tell you to do that, but where are you going to find the time? So it gets down to real practical things like, okay, it's soccer or the Lord, soccer or the eldership. I can't do both. I can't raise a family. I do have to have time for my studies. So 
We have to help men with real practical things like that. And some men I know have actually given up jobs that were just carrying them away from everything. It will come down to sacrifice, and it will come down to self-discipline, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and getting counsel from other people. And then here's a good thing. Uh, I'm glad you raised this. So when we, we had to get really aggressive to find some elders... We promise them. We promise them. We're a team. We will work together. So, some of us don't have children at home anymore. We'll we'll carry a heavier load. And when emergencies, we'll take care. We are going to protect you. We are going to do this together. And that was a big relief to them to know that the whole church wasn't going to fall on their shoulders. And that we, who had our children out of the home, which makes a huge difference... But we could fill in our day. I mean, I could fill in my day twice if I wanted to. We said, we'll carry some of this, you know. And then we have some men who were elders and not elders, and they're carrying a heavy load. So we share the load, but we do not want to destroy your family. Then we won't have you as an elder. So you work together as a team. You promise each other. Um, every elder in our church has a job description. Once a year, we go over the job descriptions. And one of the things that we go over is, how much time are you putting in? Are you putting in too much time? Sometimes their business won't allow them to put in more time. They feel better if they tell everyone so they're not hiding. They say, no, I, I can only get five hours this week. That's all I can get. There's no more of me left. And we say, great, we'll take five hours. And that will include coming to elders' meetings. Of course, we don't include going to church. Everyone has to do that anyway. So you have to be flexible in this day and age and uh, protect one another for one another in. Thinking about it, strategizing about it, coming back, reorganizing things. Having your deacons, having some good deacons to assist you is very good. Using these people who are seniors and, and uh, are uh, retired. Man, we've got to... Just one more story. i got so many stories. When a person retires, I think it's a great time to challenge them how they can use this part of their life for the Lord. So, brother in our assembly... He's married and divorced years ago. And he retired from the post office. So I said to him one morning, will you take me to the airport? We have to leave at four in the morning, though. He says, sure, I'll take the airport. So we go to the airport. His name's Bruce. And I say, Bruce, wonderful. You're retired now. What are you going to do with your life? He said, well, I don't really know yet. I said, what time do you get up? He said, I get up at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock. I said, are you doing any exercise? No, no. I said, do you read your Bible? No. I said, Bruce... The years are going to go by so fast, your head's going to spin off, and you're going to be very disappointed. So when I come back from my trip, we're going to have lunch together, and we're going to philosophize about your life. So I got back, and we talked about get up the same time every morning, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, but don't sleep in every morning. That's bad. You only have one life, and God will hold you responsible for those hours. So I so said, okay, I'm going to get up at 8 o'clock every morning. I said, great. First hour you will spend with the Lord. Get your coffee, go to the bathroom, first hour with the Lord, read your Bible prayer. Then you're going to go out and walk and exercise every day. You'll be done by 10 o'clock. Oh, okay. Now you need a ministry. Now, he does not know it, but he's got cancer. And he will die within three years. He does not know this at the time. So, he says, you know, I love older people. Okay, we have a great seniors ministry. You're going to get involved in the seniors ministry. So, if I had not sat with him, and gone over things. He'd have been, been drifting. He'd done some things for the Lord. I know this. He's a good brother. But he'd been wasted most of his time. It's so easy to waste time. So 
So anyway, he got very involved with our, our seniors and singles and uh, just loved it. That all the senior ministry picking up people, taking a job. And it's sort of like the assembly fell in love with him new because he's just there doing things. A year after this, he's real sick. He doesn't know why he's sick. Goes to the doctor. He's got cancer of the blood. So it's very serious too. And uh, so make a long story short, after another year of serving in the assembly, he, he gets up in front of the whole assembly and tells them, you will not see me again because I'm so sick, I'm going to be dying in the next six weeks. I can't even come to church, I'm so sick. So everyone's crying, I'm not going to see me. Three weeks later, he's back in the assembly, he feels great. The cancer goes in complete remission. So the next year, he's serving in the assembly. At the end of that year, cancer back again. Now it's just to everyone, you won't see me because I'm very, very sick. I'm, I'm hurting terribly. I just can't come out. Everyone's crying. Four or five weeks later, he's back in the sim. He goes in remission again. We say, Bruce, don't make any more announcements. <laughs> the next year, he did die. It was uh, came back in a, a roar. Um, he died in our home because he didn't have a family, really. But he said to us, boy, these are the best years of my life. What if we had not talked to him about his retirement? What if we had not said that to him? So, get a hold of retired people. How can you help us? How can you help our elders? Have deacons helping the elders serve. And uh, so, uh, we have to strategize. We have to sit down. How are we going to fight back? We can't just let the world run over us. And I challenge my son-in-laws. I do challenge them. I say, you know, you, you've got to take control of this tiger. They're in businesses that, you know, they can make good money. They can uh, but they want their lives. You know, they're they're connected all the time, all the time. So we need we need to make challenges, do it publicly. So we need to address the modern issues that are hurting the church. Thank you for asking that. I think we should end here because we're older group. Those young guys, they'll probably go out right after we're done. <laughs> Why don't we just uh, look for the Lord's prayer, okay? Father, we just take time to thank you for thy Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for thy word that thy Spirit uses to lead us and to guide us into all truth and helps us to understand the things about thy Son, the Lord Jesus, that we need to understand. We pray, Father, for those of us, those of us who have go to church and have leaders, that uh, we would submit to them, that we would learn these great truths that we were hearing tonight. We pray for our elders. We pray that, Father, they will... Give their time needed to, 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 to shepherd the flock, that you would encourage them and help them. And those of us who are sheep, that we might not be so um, negative to them and, and help them as best we can. Pray for our young men and women, for their, uh, that you would just draw them to thyself, help them to set aside time to be with you, uh, to realize that things of this world are just fleeting and they only please for a second. And even follow our children, we, we uphold them before you. We realize, Father, that uh, we're not perfect, and yet we have the promise of thy word that if we uh, train them up in the way they should go when they're old, they won't depart from there. So we ask for help for, for those with children that would be wise and uh, train them up in the things of the Lord. Realize the things of this world only last but for a moment. We ask your blessing on the refreshments tonight. Thank you for those who provide them. Thank you, Father, for Malcolm and Joanne at home and open our home up. We may gather in such a way. Thank you for everyone who's come. And pray that we will leave differently uh, and be changed and desire to live for you more fully. We commit ourselves in your care. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. 
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.